Stardate 68623.1. February 27th, 2015, Leonard Nimoy has passed away at the age of 83 Earth years. He was a poet, a philanthropist, a photographer, a director, screenwriter, pet shop owner, and he was Mr. Spock. We are Starfleet Academy Truants. We are a podcast in our infancy, and in our infancy, we can't adequately find our own voice, uh, let alone uh, take in stock the impact of Mr. Nemo's life, but we are here. So, this episode is for him. Thanks for listening, everyone. Live long and prosper. Welcome to Starfleet Academy Truants, another Star Trek podcast. I'm your co-host, Michael. I'm your co-host, Chris. Joining us this week is friend of the show, Max. Hello, Max. Hey, guys. The theme for today's episode, episode zero, is Leonard Nimoy. We're very sad. Yeah, that was not good news. I have the New York Times news alerts that pop up on my phone um, because I'm one of those jerks. And that was just, man, that was just icing on the crap cake for the day. It was... Uh, just an unpleasant moment at my desk. Uh, and I work in a really nerdy profession. I, I work at PC Magazine. They're all um, older nerds. And uh, like work halted briefly, and Twitter was just exploding with everyone talking about how sad they were. It was, uh, it was a weird moment. Yeah, I, uh, I was in my office, and I had just gotten out of a meeting and you know, like gone to the bathroom to cloister myself and check Twitter and... Mm. Uh, as the, yeah, it's just like that was not the news I wanted to see from Twitter. Yeah, I I was. Where were you when you heard? I was also at work. I was standing at a heavy industrial machine. <laughs> I um I I I work uh, for my day job uh, for a cheese maker, not 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 your uh, crummy replicated cheese, mind you, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's like it was like a kind of a day long battle. Like don't. Don't start crying at work. Don't start crying at work. Don't start crying at work, and because that's kind of not—it's <laughs> like the more blue-collar environment. It's not not a place for that, but well, frowned upon in the cheese-making industry. I also didn't want to cry in my workplace <laughs> bathroom. It's just like I don't want to have to answer the questions. <clears throat> yeah, no one, no one wants to be like, well, you know, life's hard, and and also Spock is dead, and where do we? Where do we go from here? Uh, I, I will say that uh, you know, I'm, I'm a student of uh, Norse and Celtic mythology, and one of the things in that culture is you got to get in some real good last words. And, and, uh, and Leonard Nimoy's final post on, on Twitter is probably going to take the cake in that department for, for a long time. Can you remind us what that was? Oh, I can. Off the top of my head, it was something like, life is like a garden. It's only perfect in your memory or something like that. It was just, God damn it, dude. Like, yeah. It's it's funny for me because like, I, I have never watched um, the original series, and, and I feel almost no no desire to do so, but I, I, I've, I feel like I, even from a young age and only watching the, the movies, really knew and under, understood what Spock was and, and what he was about. We watched um, the other night. We watched the first episode of um, the original series because we we also we we're kind of delinquent in that um, that truant corner. even and um, 
Nice. Uh, we watched the first episode, not the not the the pilot, the cage. We watched yeah. the, the first one with uh, with Bill Shatner, and that kicked off. And um, gotta say, excellent television. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the. I was not expecting a Star Trek series to start strong, just based on my <laughs> experience um, oh, with yeah. Next Generation and DS9, both of which I love, but neither of which is a strong starter. <laughs> but, no, God, no. Like, this this first episode was, like, really good. Like, it moved along at a nice clip and had a, like, really good monster of the week. And I, I, I harken back to this feeling watching the, the reboot from 2009, the, the movie, um, this kind of general sense that, like, everyone's having fun and everyone is hot. And I thought that, you know, I, I just kind of took that for granted at the time, but that's actually kind of exactly what happens on that first episode, too. You get to meet yeah. everybody, and everyone has, has you, can, you can tell their, their definite and strong personalities right away, and it's... it's yeah, it's very funny, and everyone's just, just kind of charming and attractive. And, and they're yeah, they're all like twenty five <laughs> and extremely hot, and everyone's like, got high heeled boots on. It's just generally a good time. It, it seems like they know from the get go that Spock is the hottie on this show. Like <laughs> one of the first things that happens is is Spock is sitting on the bridge, like he's taking command while Kirk is off doing something else. And, like, Uhura comes up and just starts openly flirting with him. Aggressively. Aggressively flirting with him. And, of course, it's just smoldering like that. It is not logical for you to address me in this way. (laughs) (laughs) We need to establish early on. It's like the opposite of what they had to do with Data and Tasha Yar. It's like, we need to establish early on that he's hot and completely unavailable to you, (laughs) ladies and dudes. Like. I, I, on the subject of hotness, I'm just going to say that I don't think uh, DeForest Kelly gets enough credit in that department, but we can we can just move on. Should, <laughs> should, should we talk about, like, Spock, or should we talk about Leonard Nimoy? Because I think both of them are, are kind of different. I mean, obviously, they're, they're different people in this regard, but, like, I think they, they bring up different subjects, definitely. Just kind of, like, how, how we all just described, like being emotionally impacted by the death of a total stranger who we didn't know and could not know. Um, and I think for me, I, 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 I have that connection to Leonard Nimoy is, is the whole picture, the whole human being with his, his mm. photography and his poetry and his, his, his relationship to that role um, you know, writing I Am Not Spock and then coming out later with, you know, I, I Am, am Spock. Spock, yeah. Just, um, <laughs> and apparently for the, for the people who have met him on, on you know, as a, as a fan, um, he, was a, he was a wonderful person and very uh, generous with his time and energy with the, with the people who, who really cared about his performance and his character. When I came home the other day and I, I, I said to my, my partner, you know, I go, you heard about Leonard Nimoy? And, and she said, my grandfather is dead. And I, I didn't understand what she was talking about. But at, at some point in the recent past, Leonard Nimoy tweeted, if you want me to be your grandma, uh, your grandpa, I will be your grandfather. Yeah, it's like, do you want a, a surrogate grandfather? If so, I'm available. 
Yeah, I think he was saying that because he was just really happy about his grandkids or something. Like, mm-hmm. I, but he, but his uh, his like I knew him mostly through Twitter, which is a weird thing to say. But he would like post family photos from like the 1980s and like pictures of him and like pictures of his father who looks remarkably like him, and like that that kind of you know you talk about generosity of time, but like an emotional generosity as well through something as anonymous and as impersonal as the internet, like. What a wonderful thing. And, and right now, too, when fan culture is like at this roiling peak where someone is just so quiet and gentle and genuine uh, with their public persona, like I think that was part of why it hit me so much as much as my my love for Star Trek and my love for the, the original series movies like that, I think, was what got me a bit is like now this this happy part of my Twitter feed is going to be empty. Yeah, I, I I never followed him on Twitter and honestly, like, until fairly recently, like, the last few years, I just didn't know much about him. Like, the, the reputation that both Nimoy and Shatner got in the 90s, even though it was more um, excessive with Shatner, was just, like, yeah, it's like these guys were on a corny TV show, and <laughs> now they're a bunch of dorks who do, like, dumb music and do weird stuff. Like, watching the original series movies, which I hadn't seen as a kid... And watching uh, bits and pieces of the original series and just seeing more of Leonard Nimoy's work, like his photography and stuff. It's, it's like, why do people think these guys are dorks? Like, <laughs> like they're, they're doing all right. Like, they're not bad actors. And, like, Leonard Nimoy has done so much. And I didn't realize exactly yeah. how much until I read um, the obituary in... The New York Times. Yeah, I knew that he was like in a very early. I don't think he was in the first running of Equus, but he was like in a very early run of Equus, like a very challenging and experimental piece of uh, stage. Like that's that's one thing I find so fascinating about both him and Shatner is that you know egos aside, and and we can talk about you know which one was the better man or anything like that, but like. I'm fascinated by that these two individuals who are on this incredibly nerdy TV show and uh, continue to trade continue to trade on that were like I, I, restlessly artistic. Like they both put out albums, they both have written poetry extensively, they both have pursued artistic goals with with verve and and unashamedly in the public eye. Like I find that so interesting and also very empowering. I, I'm not quite sure what the word is there, but like I think that's really cool. Yeah, I like that they didn't let themselves just be pigeonholed, even though they embraced their claim to fame. Mm-hmm. They didn't get um, crabby about it. It's like, oh, I want to focus on theater. <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> they they were very available. Mm. Yeah, they, they kind of get it. And I also think that they understand what makes Trek good. And I think... I like to believe that part of why Nimoy sort of embraced that charming and, and lovable public persona was because that that is kind of the thing that we like about Star Trek, right? That's the the big the big nice thing is that it's just a bunch of nice people doing nice stuff in the universe, trying to be good in a cold, unfeeling, godless future. Yeah, I think um, they they knew that as a you know. Uh, purportedly a science fiction show um <laughs> there's some there's some you know you know some quibbling about what that what that really means um we're going to be following this one crew in a serialized format um what's going to keep it going 
is a strong sense of character and identifiable characters who have different relationships with one another that grow as the show goes on and um, and did as, as the, the, the property went on to motion pictures and, and uh, an expanded universe with other shows. I, I've been thinking a lot about when, when you guys approached me to do this, this episode, I was like, oh, fuck, I don't know what to say about Spock. I, I didn't find anyone else to talk about Spock. But I, I, I realize that that's something that is important about him in the movies is that he is one of the only characters that wants something and that something is driving the plot like he's he's the catalyst for so many of the original series movies um while everyone else like the rest of the bridge crew gets so horribly sidelined in all of the all of the movies like no one gets a a moment with the exception i think bones gets a few and 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 kirk it's mostly just kirk and spock like running around doing everything and kirk is always sort of like running around in circles doing whatever feeling whatever he's feeling but spock is the one that drives things forward i mean um the journey home is probably the best example of that he's the one that's like oh this is whales oh we should just get these whales let's just travel back in time whatever you know he he pushes it all forward and that's such an interesting juxtaposition or even um I, I should i would be remiss if i didn't point out my favorite film uh, in the undiscovered country he's the one that has negotiated peace with the klingons and is, is encouraging kirk and the rest of the Enterprise crew to, to make this work and, and to push it forward and that it's worth doing, that the peace is worth working for. And that's kind of at odds with how uh, Vulcans are frequently portrayed as, as cold and removed and emotionless and not wanting things. But, but Spock is the most important one in all the movies. Bringing that up, um, his, his role as a negotiator, as a diplomat, um just reminded me or gave me the thought that he was very much, I think, more of an inspiration for Captain Picard than um, Kirk. I think that was a departure in the, the personalities of the different captains. And we, we go back to Kirk as kind of the mold for the captain in, in, in other series. But I, I think Captain Picard is, and is seeing himself in the, in the role of a diplomat is being comfortable in that role. Um, is is definitely inspired by more by Spock than by Kirk's uh, kind of swaggering <laughs> yeah persona I mean you're really hitting on to something there like, I think in especially in the the first season of TNG so I I've heard that in um the first season Patrick Stewart just like didn't get how to be on television and he was a real stick in the mud and people didn't like working with him because he saw himself as above everyone and was like memorizing all of his lines and that's not what you do when you film film or television and it took him a while to sort of like relax and do it and understand and gel with the rest of the cast. And, and that's definitely in there. There's like this weird aloof tension in that first season. But I think a big part of that was a conscious decision, like you're saying, Michael, to move away from the swaggering space cowboy, from the, from the, from the corsair of the skies and, and more towards the removed, aloof, a little bit awkward diplomat who's supposed to be in these important important moments for civilization well there is that two-parter in tng season four i want to say or five where uh picard and data go to romulus because spock has taken off to romulus to try to broker some reunification deal between the romulans and the vulcans and that that's a two-parter and that is an amazing episode 
I thought it was so disappointing. Ah! I, 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 <laughs> I loved it. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, let me tell you why I thought it was disappointing. I mean, first off, I never thought that like Spock went evil, and that was like how they couched it. Like Spock's gone off the reservation; he's given all the Romulans our secrets. We have to go hunt him down, and then they spend an inordinate amount of time like talking about like obscure Vulcan like intellectual puzzles and special <laughs> alphabets that they use for philosophy instead of like you know educating the Romulans uh, and then but then of course it falls apart and that's I think why I was so disappointed in it is that they didn't in the end they couldn't bridge that gap even a little bit like it's it's completely cut off like the the hope that there's ever going to be reunification in anyone's lifetime is just gone and I I felt that that was like too hard. They they came back too hard. I shouldn't really complain about all the fluff because like every, with, with rare exception, the season closer two parter of every single trek is just packed with fluff for some reason. But um, yeah, that that one that one hurt me because I'm like, oh, Nimoy's here. Like we should do something big, you know. I suppose, but I mean, it's sort of an intractable situation. But I think the revelation of sort of a, a resistance um, within Romulan society kind of foreshadows the the kind of softened relations between the Federation and the Romulans in Deep Space Nine. Yeah, yeah the Romulans gave them a cloaking device. <clears throat> yeah. like Before they knew the full impact of the threat of the Dominion, mm-hmm. I think we, I think, I think I'm curious it, uh, often a, in a tangential direction, so, I, you know, we, we can wheel back, but... I think it was not for nothing. I, I, I do have to say that one another rom, disappointing Romulan moment was that when they first get the cloaking device on the Defiant and they've got like that Romulan overseer who's there, I'm like, oh, I hope she becomes a central cast member. Like, I really wanted like the busybody Romulan to be looking over everyone's shoulders all the time. That would have been such a great character. I'm so sad that they didn't see that one through, but, but we should talk about Nemo instead. <laughs> um, so we should we should talk about uh, the voyage home because that oh, yeah. is like so far that is my favorite of the Star Trek movies. And that's like, Nimoy's baby. Didn't he write and direct that he wrote one? Wrote and directed and like starred in it. How did he do that? I don't know. He's amazing. Yeah, and it's the um, it's sort of the 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 close of a story arc that goes back to. Mm-hmm. Wrath of Khan. So it's yeah. this three movie arc when and each one has its own singular voice and its own singular purpose. And um through two of them he he really very gracefully kind of tied that story up and, mm-hmm. and in a way where each movie was individual, each movie was fun, and they all served a kind of a vague greater story. Uh-oh. Yeah, and when they abandon that storyline, I, I do think it's it's kind of a stumbling moment for um, for the TOS movies. You well, mean? Are you talking about the Final Frontier, which is horrible? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think just, we, just generally. Yeah, we would we would all. Um, I think we we all can be forgiven for just kind of skipping over that one. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. But and and you're you're right to pick up on that. It, like that Spock is actually central to all three of those movies. Like he, he spoilers dies at the end of Khan, and, and that's a, a great, a great scene. And that, yeah. that speech of course from Kirk about how 
you know, he's the most human. Like, we definitely need to talk about that just on its own. But, you know, his coming back to life, being Jesus in the, in the, in the search for Spock, and then his being the, the catalyst of the, uh, the fourth film as well, like, those are all about Spock. And, and really, everyone else is just sort of around them that entire time. Oddly, not bullshit when they bring him back to life. I don't yeah. know. I don't oh, know yeah. if I don't, or I don't know if, if I just, if I just want more Trek movies, and I just know that, like, yeah, this eventually leads to more Trek movies that I do love, like The Undiscovered mm-hmm. Country, or no, no, I think, you know, with their you know, vague kind of sciency Genesis planet, whatever BS. Like, I think, I don't know. They convinced me. And the Vulcan stuff too, where they're like, they put, um, they they mind melt. He mind melds with with bones. And that's great. And I, I like Search for Spock because you do get a lot of DeForest Kelly just being weird <laughs> on camera. And that that's fucking wonderful. Um, I, I do think that the Search for Spock is probably the weaker of those three films. Yeah. But they, there's enough going on in there. There's enough space battles. There's um, Doc Brown as a Klingon, uh, the redesigned Klingons. I think that's the, the, the uh, debut of the Bird of Prey. Like that alone makes that movie worth watching. And like, that's I, a great flick. Yeah, it's, I did not... Um, like, it. De- it is definitely the weaker of the three, but it's not a bad movie. Like, it's it's solid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. It's, oh, it's the, um, the premiere of the Klingon language. Oh, is Ooh. it? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, which was... Or the, the Klingon language in, in full, like, spoken conversationally. Right, um, right. Which was... Um, you know, crafted by uh, Mark Okrand, um from a bunch of bullshit that Jimmy Dewan made up. <laughs> the Vulcan and Klingon languages are inspired by Jimmy Dewan just kind of writing writing some lines. <laughs> I uh, it's it's funny you mention this because um, I'm sure we've all taken some linguistic courses over the years, and Klingon is always the example that they use for constructed languages, um, partly because it's so well known and it's funny, but also because like this, the enormous fan group around it has continued like the progression of the language to the point where it, I think it actually is speakable. Like it, it's, it is, it is. There are a certain number of people who are considered fluent speakers. The best part, and I, this has, I, to my knowledge has not happened yet, but uh, we need it to creolize. It needs to be taught to a child who is learning it and uh, their, their native you know, human language simultaneously um, for for linguistic purposes, because when you do that, like the kid's brain fills in all the crap you didn't think about when you were inventing the language. Like, oh, I can't wait. It'll be amazing. Um, so when they experiment on this human child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. I can't wait to experiment on that child. Um, I, I think his role in, in Wrath of Khan is interesting. Um, because that was when Nimoy wanted to leave the role of Spock. So he knew, he went into it like, this is going to be my last movie. This is going to be Spock's last movie. And that film is actually arranged pretty well around that. You know, they foreshadow it in the very beginning. Like, Kirk looks at him. He's like, aren't you supposed to be dead? Like, ho-ho. Um, and, and that becomes like Spock's death becomes such the important event of the following three films. And why I'm bringing this up um, is because they didn't plan it. They they didn't sit down and be like, well, this is going to be a three-story arc. We're going to kill Spock. We're going to bring him back, and we're going to do another movie about whales that's still going to be tied into this into this storyline. Like, every one of those movies was sort of made in a vacuum. 
the, the first one especially and bringing him back was a complete surprise as, as far oh. as i know yeah i think yeah, I maybe maybe nimoy changed his mind partway through filming uh wrath of khan um because they do add the bit with the genesis torpedo at the very end um and i i wonder i i can't remember if he like changed his mind or not but yeah like that was supposed to be it. That was the whole big reason why how they were marketing that film is that it was going to be Spock's last movie. Wow. Mm-hmm. I, I I believe that. Um, and yeah, what what a what a great shame it would be if we lived in a world without Leonard Nimoy swimming with whales. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, this scene is so silly and so serene and so wonderful. I just I just I love it so much. That that movie like. Okay, let's just talk about Voyage Home because that movie succeeds. I want to say it succeeds in spite of itself, but it would not be as entertaining or as dramatic if it was not also as silly as it is. And it's, every it's it just funny. works. It works together so well. It's like it's like a Swiss clock, but it was made by throwing things at the wall that just happened to fall into this perfect construction. See, I don't, I think you're being unfair. Like Really? Like, it is so near to being a perfect film. It, like, sure, it's the, the premise is silly. Mm. But <clears throat> all the silly stuff that happens in the movie is intentionally silly. It's supposed to be funny. That's true. My one complaint, uh, of course, because this is a Star Trek series, um, mm-hmm. there are no gay people even when they go to San Francisco in 1984. <laughs> well, George Takei is there. <laughs> And he he looks excited to be there. <laughs> he knows what Sulu Sulu's knows. Sulu's having up. a great time. He gets it. Sulu gets it. Yeah, like the and Spock's role in that one too is like being this this ultimate straight man is is pretty great. Like that's using Spock as he was intended to be used. Well, the the thing that I like about the way Search for Spock works into the beginning of um, Voyage Home is that the Search for Spock requires all three of the main characters because you've got Kirk leading the mission, Spock is dead, so they need to bring him back, and DeForest Kelly is um, has got Spock in his head. So all three of them need to be there to make it all work together. Uh, now, Uhura gets sidelined as, as usual, which is yeah. really, really tragic, but I, I like that aspect of it. And then, But after all that work, to bring Spock back, they make it clear in the end of that film, in the beginning of the next, that Spock is not the same. It's not, it's not the Spock that gave up his life for the Enterprise. It's not the most human spirit that Kirk has ever encountered anymore. It, it's, it's a child at first, and then even with Spock's memories returned to him, he's not the same. It's, it's, it, they don't just like hard reset and like everything's cool now. We've re- we've reactivated the status quo. Like everyone's sort of uncomfortable around Spock and and even Kirk, who who says that this is his best friend, which is another thing we should definitely talk about. Um, his best friend in all the world. It, it's not really him. And there's sort of this is a little bit of tragedy in there for for all the success and saving the whales and and the euphoria at the end of that movie when they're all like jumping off the the sinking ship like. <laughs> Like that, it, it's always it's always there, you know. Yeah, like the thing that Spock's lost is like his emotional connection, just kind of a weird approach, I guess. Because um, you'd think if he got his memories back, it's like well, he would also have like all of his emotional associations. Mm-hmm. But but, he, but he's Vulcan, you know. Well, he's half Vulcan. Ha, oh, he's half Vulcan. 
it, it, but his humanity is is I I gather like a hard won thing. Like by the time we see him in in the uh, the movies, like there's a whole whole TV series that he had to grow as a character and yeah and to develop and have those experiences. And I think the I think the films are so right to give Spock the respect that it's just not it doesn't all just come rushing back and everyone is happy at the end of it. You know, it's it's there and there's the potential for it to be there again, but it won't be the same. Like there's a really good article floating around the internet about death in cinema and about and not just in cinema, but like death as, as a narrative device and how it's overplayed because the, the the tragedy of death is that you never see that person again. They never come back. They never fulfill the same role that they had in your life. Yeah. You have to live with their absence forever. And unlike a lot of films which deal with the reversal of death, this one does not give back everything. Like that loss is still there. You see it in everyone in a Journey Home. Like they're they're suspicious of Spock, and it's and they don't really get him exactly. You know, he's standing on top of a mountain and learning from three computers at once. Um, you know, he's not, he, he, that might be Spock at home alone, but that's not the Spock that they necessarily know. And I think that's the right, that's the right way to play that. That's the right way to, un, that, that does justice to an audience that probably has had people die. So what do you think about Spock wearing a bathrobe for the duration <laughs> of the voyage home? I mean, it's not as good a bathrobe as he's wearing in the uh, the the reboot films, where he only appears in a gray bathrobe. <laughs> you think that Char- was in his contract? <laughs> I could only this only terry cloth touches the skin. Of <laughs> I just I just don't want to get dressed in costume for the duration of this film, so we're gonna write it so that I don't have to get dressed. <laughs> Uh, yeah. That was his agreement for bringing the character back. Uh, you guys killed me. I'm, I'll come back, but I'm not putting pants on. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't help noticing the um, uh, his his obituary mentioned that he resided in uh, Bel Air, oh. in uh, in Beverly Hills, California, which I, I recently had a, a, f- a friend take me on a tour of the wonderful city of Los Angeles, and we drove through Beverly Hills and past Bel Air. And um, golly, it's a strange, beautiful place. You can cut that shit out. I don't need. Okay. <laughs> that doesn't need to be in there. <laughs> I liked it. I, I thought that was wonderful. Did you guys see that? Um, <laughs> it just means like, yeah, it's like, yes, Leonard Nimoy had a lot of money. <laughs> he had a lot of money. He lived in a house. You saw him <clears throat> come out wearing his bathrobe and. Fucking, fucking deserved it. You know, Jew- Jewish kid from Boston. Why not? Lots of money. Living in LA. Living it up. Fuck it. And like he. Like, he was just so amazing. I don't know. Like, when we were watching, um, like, Search for Spock and Voyage Home, and then we watched The Final Frontier, uh, I I remember we we had, no, we had, like, a discussion about, like, how Spock, he plays a major role in Search for Spock and Voyage Home, but he's still... A supporting character in both of those movies like he completely magnanimously makes sure that captain kirk has the spotlight because captain kirk is the captain mm-hmm. a favor which would not be returned in a <laughs> in preceding film the final frontier which That's is a garbage film the only <coughs> explanation i can see for the final frontier is shatner being pissed that nimoy got to write and direct two movies that were widely 
acclaimed and didn't want to make any more Star Trek movies unless he got to write one. I mean, that that's entirely possible. I, I would not I would not necessarily put it past him, but he, he he went on to write Tech War, so we forgive him, right? Do we? I haven't read it. I don't know. I have no I'm, idea. Like, based on The Final Frontier, <laughs> I don't really want to read any sci-fi stories by Bill Shatner. You don't want to read Tech War? Come on, Tech War. Oh, no. He, tech like, War. I will go out on a limb and say that Shatner is a great actor. I think his work is good when he acts the thing he's good at. <laughs> um, when he does his job. He does his job and he does it well. But I, this is the one example of his writing that I've encountered was The Final Frontier. And it was so bad and showed a fundamental misunderstanding of what Star Trek is about. Whereas The Voyage Home and The Search for Spock, they're both movies and they have that bigger scope that comes with being a movie instead of a TV episode. But they, they're Star Trek. It feels like Star Trek. All the relationships are there. The mood is there. Leonard Nimoy understood what Star Trek was about. And I think you're really hitting on something here. It's not just Leonard Nimoy understanding what Star Trek is about. That character of Spock, he they go on to reinvent him in every single other Star Trek series. You know, you've got Data in mm-hmm. uh, in TNG. You have Tuvok, Odo. and and to a greater extent, uh, Seven of Nine in Voyager. You have Odo. In, in DS9, I haven't watched Enterprise. I don't believe it exists. But <laughs> like this, this idea of, of an outsider, like an outsider amongst humans and one who is not just different, you know, physically, but is also different emotionally and, and intellectually, all of those things, like that, that becomes so important to what makes Star Trek work. That mm-hmm. the not only is that person there and that they're part of the cast, but that people like him or her and they get along with him and they're like a valuable part of what makes the ship or the station work. Like they make it clear in all of those examples that as weird as this person is, they are a critical part of the family and, and of the, um, the mix necessary to do work and also to live. Like that's Spock's role and that's really the... I, think that's the legacy of the character it's a it's it's an immigrant story um yeah i, mean, I should give credit by the way that was estelle's idea no, <laughs> he's been he's always been very public about his his upbringing um in the jewish faith and how that that inspired him i mean l- literally the gesture the vocal mm-hmm. salute the greeting that they give one another um you know comes it's a blessing and also just i it's such a treat to hear him speak about his his childhood and, and his religion because I I'm always always reminded that there is so much about Judaism particularly Orthodox or Kabbalistic Judaism that I don't know about and there's just it's it's a very big very diverse world out there and everyone brings you know part of their experience to their their excellence yeah and he, yeah, they... I mean he did that as his reflected in his character and that's what he did in his role pretty pretty fantastic having that character makes the the world the universe seems so much bigger than just someone who stops in for an episode and has a weird face you know that this person is always there that these characters are always there and and really i mean if you think about it that's kind of a risk you know you're making a you're making a television show you're making a movie and you're going to have a main character a hot main character that is kind of I don't want to say unlikable, but maybe that you can't 
that the audience might not be able to project themselves into as easily as some of the others or, or would even aspire to be like do we really want to aspire to be spock i don't know i think spock is a great guy like but we don't want to be him no I... we want to have sex with him yeah, <laughs> absolutely i but... felt i felt like spock at, at at some junctures in my life i feel like a lot of i mean i i actually relate to spock the the people who miss a social cue here and there or maybe are behind on all the latest idioms on the Twitter machine. <laughs> just like feeling like you're kind of an outsider, like you're you're missing something that everyone else has. Mm. I mean, I, I can't imagine a lot of Star Trek fans would have that experience. <laughs> I don't well, not know, among that other ref- Star Trek reflects fans. why we love the show so much in a, in a small way. <laughs> Prob- probably. And again, taking that, I mean, what we just said, taking that uh, that outsider's viewpoint and being warm with it, and and bringing that into your your life as a celebrity too, is is remarkable. Especially oh, um, Walt, Walter Walter Koenig, um, TV's Chekhov, uh, w- wrote an article or was interviewed, I think like four or five years ago, and saw the interviewer asked him like, what was your relationship to the other people on the on, on the show? And he's like, well, you know, I was pretty close to some of them and blah, 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 blah. And, and, and Leonard was at first like very unapproachable, but was a real stand-up guy. And they said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, we all found out that Michelle Nichols was making less than the rest of the crew and someone brought it to Nimoy's attention and like Nimoy went and fixed it. Like, wow, he, he solved that problem. And I, I, that that made me really happy because I, I like knowing that celebrities I like are good people. That feels good. But also, like, that's, to me, embodying, like, he gets this role that he's in, too. Like, no, this this doesn't make sense. Like, this is this is illogical. <laughs> and just, this is also stupid. Like, we should solve this problem. I, I, I have things to say about Spock in the, uh, in the reboots. Yeah, go for it. He's hot in the reboots he, as well. Young Spock, young reboot Spock is hot. Old reboot Spock is is cuddly, and I want to give him a hug. He's um, a grandpa. Grandpa, Grandpa Spock. I I know that when they were making those movies, they wanted to get more people involved from the original series, and I know that they approached Shatner, and like something didn't work out there, and that they'd like written parts that were that could have been used by him, but that they weren't used in the final filming. But they they did get Nimoy, and he becomes a, a pretty big part like of the first movie, and is somewhat integral to the second mm, the second movie which we'll pretend doesn't exist but i i think it's kind of interesting that he is the character that spock is the character spock as nimoy is the character that makes it across the divide into the next round of the trek franchise um i i think that that really says something about star trek and we can we can debate like the problems of the the reboots and i I, there are a lot of problems, but it is, it's so, it's so good that he's the one that makes it across because he's the warm one. He's the, the human one. He's the most human one. And he's also the one that embodies all these ideas about Star Trek. Like Star yeah. Trek without Spock is just another, is just another TV show. And I'm also fascinated by it personally because uh, the characters that I always love in, um, in literature are, are the like the wandering immortals like the, those people who have been cursed with immortality and are like just just done with this world like I, I like those characters and now Spock is in those ranks like he has been pulled from his universe and dropped into this one he's out of time he's out of place he doesn't know what he's supposed to do there it's it's such a cool character 
He is they kind do. of uh, the wandering Jew. Literally I was trying to avoid <laughs> saying that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it's okay because he is Jewish. Oh, we can get away with it. Yes. Getting yes. away with it. He's, 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 yeah. he's a, he is a, a, a Jewish person who wanders uh, for all time. Is, is there a divide between the type of Trek fan who really gravitates to and really loves Kirk, is really inspired by Kirk, and the type of Trek fan who is really in, uh, t- takes a cue from Spock? I can, I can guess wh- on which side of the line all three of us might fall on that. Can I say that we're more Spock people? Yes. I mean, I'm a bones man. Like everyone around you is crazy. Why are they all like jumping off of spaceships trying to like solve this problem? This is insane. You're all nuts. Like, yeah, um, yeah that's true, Max. You are more like bones. I am. I am like bones. But if I were to choose between Kirk and Spock, I would. I would definitely ally myself with Spock, um, because Spock never. Spock never gives up in the face of great adversity. Like he always. He always finds a way. Kirk finds a way too, but. Spock's way is always the one that is the better one, I, I feel. The, the less phaser zappery one. Yeah. Yeah, and I, like, this is maybe kind of counterintuitive, but I feel like Spock is the more emotionally sensitive character between Spock and Kirk. Like, Kirk is just, like, a child. He <laughs> is very emotional, but he's not that in tune to other people's emotions, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I don't know, Spock Spock is kind of off in his own world and doesn't exactly understand emotions, but I don't know, he's more perceptive of subtlety. That doesn't that make sense though, because you know, if you're if you're around people who are doing this emotion thing and you you can't do it, but you have to recognize it in other people that in order to fit in, like and like he gradually Sp- learns that, yeah. Well, I yeah think- Spock is well, at, uh, like w- there was a comparison to Data earlier, and I was just thinking, um, Data has the gift of being able to be the best friend of everyone on the ship because mm-hmm. he's available to everyone on the ship, but because he's different, he doesn't experience the burden uh, that that yeah. brings. Um, where uh, were a typical person to maybe attempt to to fulfill that role for for everyone. I wish I could remember. I've only seen The Final Frontier once, and it was a long time ago. Oh, it's bad. And I wish I, I wish I could remember what Spock is doing in that movie because I feel like it's, it's important. It would be really good for this discussion if I could remember what the hell Spock is doing in the worst Star Trek film. He's flying in rocket boots. <laughs> that's all boots. I remember. Yeah, he has rocket boots. Yeah, that's that's the gist of it. We were both leaning into the microphone and looking into his other's <laughs> eyes in anticipation. <laughs> <laughs> bringing up the rocket boots. But that's the only you... thing Spock does in that movie is like fly around on rocket boots. He doesn't do anything else. Built this escape-proof cell. Like, why didn't... What the well, fuck why were you guys were all using the other... before? Yeah, it's like, what... The, were the other cells just like cardboard boxes that you kind of like push a guy into and he kind of just bashes his way out? Like... I... Wait, now that I think about it, that is the other thing that he does in Final Frontier is that he... Uh... They asked, like, well, who designed, who, who did they test this on the, to find out if it was escape proof? And they had tested it on Spock. <laughs> and what the, okay, so Spock's brother, like, I, <clears throat> I remember that that's important, but I don't remember him really caring too much about that. Spock's brother sucks and is terrible, and we shouldn't talk about him anymore. All right, well, let's talk about another relationship that Spock had that wasn't with Kirk. Um, his, his student, 
I, I, whose name escapes me. I want to say it's Vidalis, but I know that's not it. But it, it's the... Vangelis. Valaris. Valaris. Yeah. His relationship with Valaris is really important because that's his, that's him going to pass on his legacy as like, I think he says something like there always must be a Vulcan on the Enterprise or something like that. And then there always is a character who's basically exactly the same on the Enterprise or the title ship of the show. But like his, his hopes and his failure um, really, really, really the bookends of that film, uh, picking someone who has betrayed him like that is really interesting to me. And that's also the time we see Spock. I, again, haven't seen TOS, so I don't know if this happens other times, but the, the only time I can think of Spock being cruel is where he forcibly mind melds his former student and, like, drags the information that she's trying to hide out of it so that they can save the Federation and and stop a war. Like, that is, yeah. that's a powerful moment where Spock knows what he needs to do, and it's the logical thing, and it's it's horribly cruel. It's, um... We, yeah, we are talking about the Undiscovered Country. We are talking about yeah. the Undiscovered so We're not talking about his previous protege, um, Savick. Who, yeah, who they, they write off. I, I think there was like some kind of uh, disagreement over like who owned the character of Savick because they wanted to turn Savick into the, into the, uh, the traitor for the fifth film. And then, uh, sixth film? Whatever. Six, for, six. Sixth film for Undiscovered Country. And then they're like, you can't do that to my character. I read Wikipedia about this and it was apparently entirely like a backstage argument kind of thing but but yeah like the idea of spock having a protege that's not kirk and having this whole other like these these whole other hopes invested in in a character and having them dashed with almost without any sort of uh without much fanfare really is is kind of interesting like those those moments of that film are great for me it's a great film it is a great film it's my favorite star trek movie it's up it's up there for me it's I love it, and that's that's uh, undiscovered country is the film that I watched most as as a kid growing mm-hmm. up. My introduction to Star Trek was the original series movies that I watched with my mom. Yeah, the same for me actually. I, I watched them with my mother, and uh, I I mean for me, undiscovered country is is kind of a is kind of great because a lot of the characters who got I mean Sulu gets sidelined a lot in the movies, but he gets his own command and he's he's integral to that film and. It's about bigger things than just the survival of the crew or their relationships. Like that's a really big part of it. But and it's not about the destruction of the Earth. It's about the future of the Federation and whether or not they are going to be able to be peaceful explorers or always on a war footing with the Klingons. Like that is like with that much at stake, and they manage to make it worthwhile. And we can all conveniently forget the weird Klingon gulag section of that movie. <laughs> well, that was fun. And, and we got to see Michael Dorn playing his own grandfather. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, I, I was blown away by that. Oh, man. I, and we, we really shouldn't ignore, uh, ignore the prison planet bit because I respect any movie, and I include the Chronicles of Riddick in this, that can just like drop a prison movie into the middle of another movie and have it make <laughs> sense. I feel like there's so much more to say about Spock, and I, I kind of feel ill-equipped. I feel a little bit ill-equipped to talk about him because I just... I, I don't know. I feel like nothing I say about Spock is going to be as interesting as Spock the character or Leonard Nimoy, Leonard Nimoy the character. I, another man, thing I love. Yeah, uh, that he's was... a character too. He appeared on The Simpsons. In the great <laughs> Futurama. Role. Don't forget Futurama. Oh yeah, he was good on that too. Well, I mean, I, that sentiment I felt so deeply because you know this. You know, this is a young podcast. 
we're we we haven't even released our first episode and now we have to figure out our dynamic and deal with this we have to in in our own meager way kind of eulogize this person who was such a big part of our lives and we don't you know we don't know if we're going to be adequate to the job but we're here and we're recording and we can't not recognize him yeah. yeah, I don't know. I I feel I feel better ha- having a good laugh <laughs> and remembering how the, the the good things and the and the reflections on 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 my own life that I've gotten from uh, Leonard and, and Spock than certainly much better than I felt um, on the day of his passing when I just it was just kind of this raw grief. So you know we're doing okay. So I, I guess maybe it's a fair question to ask then. Like, what is the, what is Star Trek without Leonard Nimoy? Now, like, I, I know that this the franchise has faced a lot of existential crises in the past. I don't think there's a bigger one than, uh, than than right now where there's no TV show and there was a a, a huge disappointment film wise recently. movie. Yeah. yeah. And and then, you know, it it this series has lost its creator. It's lost a lot of the original cast. It's lost, I think, nearly all the original writers. And and Nimoy's passing seems like the the loss of such a giant character. I I wonder where does you know the show will go on. It's going to because it makes money. But what what does it mean now that they won't be able to fall back? They won't be able to like claim legitimacy by having Spock in their movie. They won't be able to to bring him in. Like where is his where where's the future go? Yeah, that's a good question. Like Spock is such an icon, mm. and Leonard Nimoy himself is such an icon. I don't know. I think after Into Darkness, in our present condition as <laughs> lifelong fans of 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 this franchise, and like that's kind of an ugly word, but you know this this show and what it means. I think it's about time for the people who are creating this to be existentially put in between a rock and a hard place because they Mm. have responsibility. I mean, we can talk about it and we can write fan fiction and we can always live in our own experience of this show because we've grown up with it and it will hopefully move on, you know, throughout even future generations but the people who are making the property need to think long and hard about what their responsibility is to it. We're feeling this void as fans, and we're wondering what comes next. I, I, I hope the people writing and making the new show and movies can, can feel in the same place that we are. Yeah. I, I think the the saddest the saddest thing here is that we have the the biggest narrative for Spock and that character that we're all aware of because we watch the movies is his death and rebirth and and knowing that that's not not only is it not narratively an option it's really not an option in, in reality either that's they found a way to save him so many times uh, they bring him into the new universe and drag him across an ice planet with hot young sexy Kirk new Kirk. <laughs> And and now there's there's no way they can they can have that character again. Yeah. Was that a, is that a good place to end? Is that a good place to leave off? 
You can put that as the ending, but I remembered something I wanted to say, and maybe you want to put it earlier. Can I say it? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so I, I think one of the things about Spock that's really, really, really important is that he's one of the characters that, uh, he's a recurring character that has like a small but very visible physical difference from everyone else in the cast. Now, it's not the same as being physically disabled, so please don't hear me as saying that, because that is something that Trek is sorely missing and always has been. Um, but... Like, I see a big connection between Spock and Geordi um, because those were the characters that, like, you look at them and there was a, they were designed characters. They're like, oh, there's something different about them. And it's just one little thing. It's the ears. It's the visor. And even those, those two characters, um, uh, I'm sorry, those two actors later on, you know, they've they kept those as mementos. Like, that was their character. For, for Leonard Nimoy, he had the ears. And for... Um, Oh, cripe, I blame LeVar Burton. And for LeVar Burton, LeVar Burton had the, the visor, and actually several visors. Um, I, I think that's an amazing, like, weird cross-generational connection there that that is so important. And I, I actually see other parallels between Spock and Geordi, just as being outsiders, as being different, as not quite getting everything the way everyone else does and filling some of the same roles as well, like a little bit more so than Data. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, because Data wants to become more human. Like, that's his goal. I'm not... I mean, maybe it's more Tuvok that's like this, but like I always felt that Spock doesn't necessarily want to become more human. Like, he has a sense of identity. Yeah. And his identity is fraught, and it's conflicted. He's, he's from two different worlds, literally. He's having an experience that I think probably only people of, uh, of biracial descent now experience, where it's like, where, where are my allegiances? Where do I put myself culturally? Like those kind of struggles, I, I don't see so much in Data, who, who just is trying to fulfill that part of himself, which he sees as deficient. Mm -hmm. There's a great speech. I wish it was done by Spock, but not unfortunately, but it's, it's done by Tuvok and Voyager, where they, it's during the flashback episode, because Tuvok is on, the bridge of, um, is on the bridge of the Excelsior during the events of Undiscovered Country, believe it or not. And... Um, He's talking to his human, one of his, his human bunkmate, and he's complaining about how all the humans, even humans in the Federation, think that everyone should think and act like they do, and it's like a kind of cultural imperialism, and I don't want to be part of it anymore. Um, and, and Spock never, I don't think, ever displayed that kind of belief. Like, he didn't think that other people should behave as him. He, would underst he understood when they didn't, and would yeah. sometimes write that off as human weakness or whatever, but it was never, he never required others to think of, think the way he does. Well, I think that's, um, that's what we got. So, um, from all the Academy Truants, um, we give thanks to Leonard Nimoy for an exceptional life, an exceptional character. And, uh, thanks to Max for joining us. Max, do you have any plugs? Oh, I'm following that up with my plugs. Um, yes, uh, Brian Weekly. You should all be listening to Brian Weekly, a project that I share with my two lovely hosts. And you should read Matham House, which is a, uh, a literary magazine project, which uh, will have some articles about Star Trek in the very near future. So keep an eye out for that. All right. Thanks, Max. This has been Starfleet Academy Truants. You can follow us on Twitter at Academy Truants or visit our website at academytruants.tumblr.com.